Welcome to Homebrews in Focus, an episodic video series covering homebrews with their developers. Joining me this time is Derek Andrews with Gradual Games, and we'll be discussing The Legends of Alia. Welcome, Derek. Hi. Thanks. <laughs> glad to be here. That's great. Um, I'm glad you can join me and make the time. Uh, great game, and I hope we can uh, learn something about together for the viewers. Um, before we kind of jump into it, I was hoping you can give maybe a, a short intro about yourself, gradual games in general. Sure. Um, so um, I was was really interested in game development for a long time. I, I first started really when I was like 13. Um, but without going into a ton of history, I got into um, NES development after college, um, wanting to resuscitate. Um, my game development from my youth, and I eventually was pointed to NES Dev by a coworker, um, and and found the uh, what was then Parodius.NESDev.com, I believe, and started looking at tutorials, uh, and uh, the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> That's how it goes. <laughs> um, so. Where did Legends of Alio come from? I think I understand this was kind of um, a childhood ambition for you, this this project. Yeah, so the history of the Legends of Alia stretches all the way back to a fifth grade enrichment class where we were put into teams and we were told to come up with some kind of creative project idea. And I think that some teams maybe came up with a movie script and others came up with a um, novel or something, and then me uh, and my friends were nerds, and we came up with a video game. And um, I, I'm pretty sure that the name was my idea. I came up with the, the name, The Legends of Aulia, and and then I don't remember any of the characters or story ideas that me and my friends came up with back then, but I kept the name around. And uh, a few years later, when I was in seventh grade, I was learning QBasic. And it wasn't long after that that I'd learned enough to make, to make an RPG, um, or at least attempt to make an RPG. And I used that name from, from what I'd come up with with my friends some years earlier and started creating a sort of uh, Final Fantasy I-style RPG um, and it bears no relation whatsoever to the ultimate incarnation that it uh, turned into on the NES. Uh, really, only the name survived, and the idea that there would be this 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 mysterious white owl that appears in a tree is the one idea that I think survived all those years. <laughs> um, but it became something totally different. So, I guess one last question before we kind of jump into it, and I understand. You kind of searched around for a while to find a platform to make this game on. I think you started to look at QBasic again. Um, then you looked at a couple other situations to kind of develop the game before you landed on um, yeah. the NES. Yeah, so um, the first thing I did, and this was like right out of college, I was starting my first job. And, and in, in the evenings, I was trying to get back into my game development. I was trying to find something that would um, either be the same thing as Quick Basic or something very close to it. And I discovered Free Basic, which is a modern open source uh, successor to QBasic. And it actually preserves a lot of the old 
QBasic API, um, but it goes a lot beyond that. So it actually has like a QBasic compatibility mode, but for the most part, the syntax is supposed to be a lot like QBasic. So I started with that and um, me and my then wife, uh, Lori, um, uh, designed um, various uh, characters for the game, including uh, Atlanteal. Um, and there was actually a, there was actually going to be a, a, a male protagonist as well. And at one point, we had a scrolling map for the PC written in three basic with a male protagonist and a female protagonist walking around together on the map, kind of like in Chrono Trigger with your party following each other. Um, and I think I got overwhelmed by 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 scope and lack of experience building a full game, and so that stopped. And then I think we briefly looked into RPG Maker XP, um, and by that point we had decided on only having Atlantial as the protagonist. So we had a sprite for Atlantial walking around some stock art in RPG Maker XP, and I think I just got disillusioned with using a game maker. I wasn't very satisfied by that. I uh, all of the game development I'd done as a kid was basically from scratch. And I, I enjoyed the feeling of having a totally blank slate and building something from the ground up that just really appealed to me. I didn't like having to figure out somebody else's system. I wanted to build a system. Like, I guess yeah. this is what they call in the, in the industry the not invented here syndrome. I had it bad with game development. <laughs> I wanted to build all the things. Um, and I had had a little bit of experience with assembly language on DOS as a teenager. So when I found NES dev, um, I, uh, it just really appealed to me, the idea of making a game in assembly language. And I think the constraints and the appeal of assembly language and the appeal of building things all on my own kind of just put wind in my sails. It just made me feel like working on it more than other systems I'd, I'd worked on. And I had lots of nostalgia for the NES because it was one of the systems I had as a kid. So, yeah. I, I can agree with that. Um, loving the NES and then also looking for a way to get your creative projects uh, to fruition. I, I, I think, I don't know how many people used it, but it seems like a lot of people, including myself, used um, RPG Maker in some iteration. I think um, it was RPG Maker 95 or 98 when a friend of mine said, oh, check this out. And I don't think it was officially uh, brought over. Uh, someone made like a, uh, their own translation of the software at the time. And... <laughs> You know, dove into it. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a nice piece of software, and I know lots of wonderful games have been made in it. But I just think, just I think that par partly for for me, one thing I've realized over the years is I've built games in a variety of platforms now, not just NES. The thing I was really looking for was the was the feeling of using QBasic. Like the feeling of building something in QBasic was so fun for me that. That's what I was trying to recreate almost more than I specifically wanted to make a game. Like I wanted to have the, the process of creation had to feel like that. Like, like it was a tremendous amount of nostalgia for that level of simplicity that drove me to the NES. Yeah. Um, you want to dive into the gameplay? Sure. All right. So I guess the, the short story of this is um, Merman, the king of the mermaids, um, has taken over the land and you have to rescue the six great owls that are captured. Yep. 
he got jealous of the beautiful lands above. He got sick of his murky, you know, algae-filled, you know, dark underwater world. <laughs> Maybe there's too much pollution and he got mad. <laughs> it's like you could you could you could tell the you could tell the alternate story where the bad guy's actually the good guy and he's really he's really mad about all the uh, all the all the pollution coming from the land lovers. <laughs> I find those interesting when you when you flip the context or someone makes it like from the other view. <laughs> yeah. Although I'm nostalgic for pure good versus pure evil, so I'm happy to leave it at that for this game. <laughs> <laughs> so this was um your second game for the NES, coming off of uh, Namelos uh, storming the castle. Did you yeah. find it? Uh, uh, quick and easy transition to jump into the next project, or what was kind no. of the story? I would I, I would say that I mean building any complete game project is a rather significant sequence of, of emotional and mental states that one has to go through, um, and uh, you know going from from the high of finishing one project to starting another is quite quite a process and often takes several weeks, if not longer, of sort of gently allowing yourself to ramp down and, and very slowly get into the next thing. Um, at least that's the way it is for me. Um, and, uh, like, I, I had um, Trophy on my radar mm -hmm. when I was going to make either Aulia or Trophy as my second game. Um, and I think I picked Aulia because I, I, I still... I failed to finish it as a teenager, and I have, mm -hmm. I had sort of a, um, a vendetta against a guy I knew online as a teenager named Lord Cubasic, and I really wanted to, like, finish the game that I failed to finish back then because he he failed to finish his RPG, and there was I had a big falling out with him and a big prideful sort of thing going on. This is when I was a teenager, but I, I mm -hmm. still felt like I had to resolve this and, and finish The Legends of the Valley, so I feel like I defeated him once and for all, which is kind of silly having a uh, vengeance quest uh, against a teenage foe uh, when you're an adult, but uh, that was part of the part of the reason why I picked the Owl. Um, I, think, I think it has to come down to the name Lord of Cubasic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Um, what was I going to say? Um, sorry, I'm having like a mental train wreck all of a sudden. <laughs> That's all right. Well, in the I game, remember, right? I yeah. remember it was that the. I think that you know, um, when you when you come from the kind of the, the sort of golden age of video games, like I did from my generation, you really really want to make a game. Then the it's you you really don't know when you are making your first game what you're getting into and how hard it's going to be and yeah. it's very easy to make decisions that that make the scope so huge that you're virtually guaranteeing yourself that you're not going to finish your project or it's going to take a lot longer than you thought and due due to some lucky circumstances and nuggets of wisdom i had acquired i was able to accurately determine for my first game anomalous I gave myself actually five years to finish it, and I wanted to take three and a half years. Um, and then Aulia, I took the same approach. However, 
um, even with all of the massive breaks that I put on my own ambition, I still, um, even when I made concessions later, I still ran into things that were so difficult that in retrospect I wish I had constrained it even further, given my level of experience and the difficulty uh, that building a game of this scope presents on something like the NES. Yeah, I, I hear that that often. When people jump in, it's just um, if you aim too high, you know, for your when you're learning, it just you burn yourself out, or it becomes such a it's just a weight on your shoulders that you should you know start a little bit lower. But in the yeah. end, this game turned out great um, despite any kind of concessions you made. It's been well yeah. received by most. Thank you. Yeah, but so um, the, the, one of the nice things about creating a game for a retro system is that it, it forces you to make all sorts of decisions early on about the scope that are actually very helpful for finishing a project. Um, it's still, of course, possible to get over ambitious on, on almost any system, but it, it um, you know, if you try to make something in like RPG Maker XP or Unity or whatever, there's virtually no limits whatsoever, and so it's very hard to rein yourself in when you don't have when you don't know what it's going to be like actually building out the game. Yeah. So so far in the game, you've awakened in the town. And um, you have your companion uh, Taito, which is your your basically like an owl familiar in a sense that has some uh, abilities. And you start off with um, with rush, which is an attack, and fetch, which where you can grab things kind of out of reach by the the main character. And we kind of get a, a sense of the story right now as you meet one of the uh, great owls. Yep, and this this scene is the is the idea that I think survived since that that meeting with my friends in fifth grade. <laughs> so that's the only kernel idea of of the Legends of Alia that uh, stayed alive since 1995. <laughs> so, were you inspired by certain games? Um, this kind of had a feel of. Um... Crystallis, um, a little bit of Legend of Zelda, or um, Star Tropics. I don't think it pulled yeah. necessarily from strictly any of those, but they're all kind of little elements in the game. Yeah, I'd say I'd say the the, the biggest initial inspiration was was Zelda, but um, due due to certain design choices we made, such as the size of Atlantial, I eventually ended up drawing from some visual elements um, of Star Tropics, such as the way doors work in dungeons is was kind of inspired by Star Tropics. It's kind of a weird... It, I remember early on dis discussing the size of the character and the way doors would look and stuff with, with my artist, and uh, it's kind of weird when you, when you start thinking about perspective in overhead games, because if you look at Zelda, um, everything in the overworld is sort of like the view we're seeing right now in, in, yeah. in Alia. But in Dungeons, in Zelda, everything leans out from the center. The walls all seem to be leaning out from the center, but Link is still sort of a flat character. Yeah, yeah. Right. It looks a little funny when he's going through doors to the east or west, but because he's a chibi small character, 
you don't really notice it that much and it works. But with a tall character like Atlantial going through doors the east and west with mm -hmm. things flared out from the center, it looks really weird like she's really flat on her side. And so the only way to make that look right that I discovered was was having like a, a, a pillar, a 3D looking pillar, kind of like in Star Tropics. And so that then that works for all four doors and it, it looks more convincing. Um, so yeah, Star and and the uh, Star Tropics also had that that yo-yo ability, which is kind of reminiscent mm -hmm. of the owl, but that actually wasn't. That was sort of coincidental. Yeah. <laughs> so so now so between those two things, it 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 feels Star Tropics ish. I think also like, um, kind of like the open world outside with the dungeon seems more more of Crystallis or Star Tropics rather than Legend of Zelda overall because you kind of Crystallis you're kind of gr grinding to, for experience so that you can go to the next area and that's kind of similar to this where you're looking for yeah. gold to go into the dungeon yeah and, and initially I really I had wanted to make it more of an exploratory overworld um, kind of kind of thing and it, it ended up getting much more linear and I, I think it's just at, at, at one point in the development I just kind of had a a sort of a deer in the headlights moment with respect to the the scope um, of of managing a truly open world uh, game project, especially um, my working relationship with my artist was not the best um, working relationship. Um, it wasn't something that she super wanted to do, but she did do it, and. I kind of was happy that I had somebody to work with because <laughs> that's often difficult to, to find at, at all uh, as an amateur game developer. Um, and uh, so I, I think that probably drove some of my concessions, such as not doing a fully open world. Um, but I mean, it, I, I also kind of like linear games, so. Yeah. It turned out pretty well. and 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 the uh, some of the puzzles turned out pretty good too. Being linear, it's it, it get, it's good. It, it kind of gives you a break between the dungeons because I think if it flipped all the way to just dungeon after dungeon, I think something would be lost in that. So now you yeah. have this kind of break, even if it's not the the open world that maybe you consider in the beginning. It it is it is good. I, I do like that aspect of it. Yeah, it's sort of a pacing change. Yeah. You'll see me struggle a little bit with some of these. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and when you met the Great Owl, now you have um, the unlock ability, which you need for the dungeons, too. Um, so Taito can unlock certain pillars for you. Yeah, um, the pro programming programming Taito was 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 so fun. I think that was one of the highlights of, of the project was 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 programming Taito. There were a lot of hidden complexities that came up um, from from getting him to work. Like um, there was a bug that Taito had where when he starts following you. I have to determine what direction the sprite faces. Like this four, there's four directions that he's drawn in, you know, northwest, east, south. But he's moving in basically an infinite number of angles, and so I have to to look at a at, at a range of 
um, values to determine which direction he should be pointing. And if he was going at just a certain diagonal, he would alternate between two states. Like if he's if he's going diagonally south and east, he would alternate between pointing right and pointing down, and sort of wobble yeah. really fast along that diagonal. And so I had to come up with this really crazy scheme that remembered the last several attempts for him to turn, and would only allow him to turn if the last like four states were I tried to turn south, um, and that stabilized. I guess I guess uh, that's called debouncing in, in engineering. So did that solution come naturally, or or was that kind of uh, a learning process to figure that out? Um, well, it didn't come naturally. It was it was you know it was very time consuming. Um, yeah. I, I came up with the, with with ideas for how to implement it, and just had to tinker with it and iterate iterate on it for I don't know how long. Probably uh, a lot a lot of the features uh, like the scrolling or. Kaido flying or whatever, each little thing took, you know, several weeks <laughs> to iron out. You know, it's not something, not something I could bang out. Yeah. Anything, they're all quite tricky. Um, and eventually the code got so big on Alia, I had, I had this crazy bank switching scheme where Atlantial's state machine would call into Taito's state machine and then that would call back into Atlantial's state machine. And then there are there are two different banks, and so they'd actually there'd be like multiple uh, trampoline calls stacking on top of each other to call back and forth. It, it, it became quite a crazy, uh, crazy system. Um, I, I, I don't know. Do, do uh, you do you want do you want to keep things more on, on, on like a game gameplay game design level, or, or do you mind technical responses like that? <laughs> no, no, both are good. Um... Okay. Because there's there's multiple, I think multiple ways people will view this, um, and ultimately, I backstory I guess for <laughs> the listeners is like the goal of this series is kind of um, for you in a sense where you can you know talk about your experiences of the game and kind of as a preservation that it's it's there. So the technical or just the gameplay. <laughs> So uh, we just finished the first boss. Um, I really like your bosses. I, I was wondering. I think, um, do you enjoy that aspect of it? Because they're always pretty creative, you know, with this with trophy. Um, yeah, I I enjoyed programming programming the bosses uh, quite a bit. Uh, yeah, I think programming the bosses both for this game and for trophy and probably anomalous too. So are some of the most interesting state machines um, to to create the sequences and so on. Maybe, maybe that's why you liked um, uh, uh, programming for Taito so much, because it's that the same aspect, but it's going to be something with the, you the entire time as playing it. Yeah. Yeah, the... Um, um, we didn't realize it when we first made it, but the, the octopus, the three tentacled octopus boss in the first dungeon looks kind of phallic because <laughs> the the middle the middle the middle tentacle comes out. And I didn't realize it until after we made it that it that it looks kind of perverted. Um, didn't even pick up on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now we have the uh, carry bomb ability. 
Yeah, it, it, it's it's amazing how 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 time consuming it was to make something like the tentacle attack work on that boss because um, it has to it has to basically modify. Actually, I can't remember how he did it. He either had static sprites that just extended really far, or we modified it in memory. I can't remember now. I think they were static, but it was just quite time consuming. <laughs> It's fun how the, um, the the things that can follow you, such as Taito and these jellyfish here, all use the same basic uh, homing technique, which is effectively you just take the x and y distance and divide it by some arbitrary value. And on with NES programming, doing bit shifts is very easy to do a division by a power of two. And so anything that follows you is really just taking the difference in X and Y between the two characters and then bit shifting it and then using that as the velocity. And so what, as, a, as a result, it's, it, it moves really fast until it gets close to you and it kind of starts slowing down, mm. which is perfect for a bird like alighting on your shoulder. Uh, but I reused that exact same technique for these uh, jellyfish. <laughs> It's a very, very crude technique, but it works. <laughs> how did how did you um, match sea creatures with world themes? So now we're like in the snow, ice, you know. How did you decide jellyfish? <laughs> I don't know. A, a lot of a lot of the game design was quasi random. Um, like we had like the idea of of. Um, sea creatures on land, but I think we just picked creatures we liked and created something and put it in there. Like it was almost like an improvising. Like, like I, I have this new friend now who I'm talking to a lot about game design, and she's like unbelievably brilliant with like having a vision for a game and characters and stories. Like She has it all in her head. But for me, when I designed game, I didn't really have a, I didn't really have a vision. I just, I had a very vague idea, and then each new thing we came up with was almost random. <laughs> it's like it's just two different ways to how you eat art or anything you create in art. Some people have a vision yeah. in their head, and it's all done, and they're just making what's their head on paper. And some people, they put a little bit something on paper and they're like okay i like that and then they kind of keep going from there it's just yeah. two different avenues to get to um, a similar result in retrospect it's kind of funny that the owl is used to open a chest that's on the ground it's like laniel can't <laughs> bother herself to bend over and open the chest and have the owl do it for her. I guess it's because whenever you open a chest in, in, in Alia, the, the, the loot flies into the air, so they all... <laughs> it's like a jack-in-the-box just pops out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so every every overworld is sort of a, a fetch quest of gold in order to be admitted to the next dungeon. And so some, some might uh, see that as sort of the filler material 
Um, and I, I kind of feel like it was because I wanted it to be a more exploratory, you know, overworld thing where you have to go talk to people and they give you clues and, and it's kind of vague like Zelda. Mm-hmm. You don't know where the next dungeon is. Um, but due to, due to scope um, constraints and time constraints, I eventually settled on something more linear. And uh, Fetch Quest is, um, you know, one way of solving that problem. <laughs> It's it's um not that unsimilar to other games that you have to be a certain level to go somewhere. So instead, you're kind of getting experience or XP rather than gold. Yeah, um, this one's better than I think ones that they don't tell you, and so you just end up at a boss and you're just not the right level. So there's just no way you can beat them. You just keep dying, and you're like, <laughs> what's wrong? <laughs> Uh, I think Crystallis does that. You have to be a certain level to to cause damage to a boss, but it, it doesn't tell you that. So, um, as we kind of go on in the game, you'll see um, Taito gets more and more abilities. Um, so you kind of have the ones that you started with, which were... Uh, the rush, um, the fetch, and then the unlock, mm-hmm. and then the carry bomb, which we have, and eventually lanterns, carry a lanial, um, a shield, and a homing. But there is a, a slew of other abilities that you're considering during development. Um, for one way, or, one reason or the other, you kind of um, removed from the scope. Was there any that you you wish were in it, or were all the cuts? Um, uh, choices that you still uh, stand by well it, it's been a long enough time that the only one that I remember that I had some uh, fondness for was the idea that the owl would would go retrieve mail for you um, and that it would be like a letter from like a sage type character to give you some clue about where to go next um, but uh, it, once the game became more of a li- more linear it didn't seem to make as much sense because there wasn't really um, the same sort of overworld puzzle solving element of where do I go next? I don't know. Yeah. Somebody. Um, so that was dropped for that reason. And actually at the moment I don't remember um, what the other proposed abilities were. I think um, at some point you were... Uh considering having the owl have its own health or energy to kind of pair with these abilities. Um, I think that was one of them. Yeah, I actually don't remember that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember what uh, machinations I went through thinking about how Taito would work. Yeah. Oh, so um, I guess we'll step back for a minute. How long was the game in development? When did you start development and when did you finish? So I started it fairly soon after I finished and released Anomalous in 2012. Um, so around early 2012, I think, is when I started. And then it was finished around 2016. So about four years. It was about it was almost exactly four years in development, I think. It's about a half year longer than Anomalous.
something interesting about the uh, collision detection I remember is that it used to be uh, before like the last maybe quarter of development it used to be that Atlantial's hitbox was her full size of, of uh, 16 pixels mm. wide by 24 pixels tall and so when she would go past things like those spikes um, if they were intersecting her head and that it, um, it would it would hurt her but mm. I later decided to make it more consistent with the overhead sort of three-quarter view her hitbox is smaller it, it only occupies her lower half now so if she walks past just like she walks past a wall without hitting it um, she can walk underneath something like these spikes and not hit them if her head is partially intersecting it I do appreciate that with <laughs> comparing it to the games that kind of use the full sprite for uh, um, hit detection you're like come on they just hit like the top like a strand of hair <laughs> this puzzle is probably the most wicked puzzle in the game yeah and I think it gets almost everybody stuck and I don't blame them because the solution for this puzzle is you have to blow up both of these blocks in it well oh wow well I've played this game a, a couple times Oh, I don't know if, if you imagine the different way of how that happened, though that's that's how I do it. Yeah, well, that that's actually impressive, because um, it, there's a very small time interval between blowing up those two ice blocks, and the the only, the sort of, like, um, quote-unquote approved solution that I came up with was um, a, a quirk of how Taito, Taito's state machine works with the bomb, is that if you throw him against a wall while holding the bomb, and then... Um, he won't drop it until it gets back to you. And I took advantage of that quirk to design that puzzle. But apparently it... And, and maybe that wasn't in use in that in that scene. I, I couldn't quite tell because it was going against a different wall than I usually use. But it, it looks like it may be possible to solve the puzzle without using the quirk, which is probably a good thing. But there's more than one way to solve it. I think it helped. Uh, it says in the manual, gives you a hint. There's a NPC that kind of gives you a hint. Um, and then I've, I think before I actually got the Legends of Alia, um, I read a couple things about it and they kind of pointed out that like, oh, there, there's this thing and you have to throw two bombs at a certain point. I think I would have uh, struggled with that if I didn't. If someone didn't say something to me. Yeah, it was. It's a wicked puzzle. Yeah, it's, it's, it, I think this is the only dungeon in which bombs are super useful. I can't remember if they if they come into use again. I don't. Um, I don't think you have to do the the two um, two bombs at the same time again. Yeah, but there's even those the, like those those ice blocks that that are sometimes in your way that you can blow up in this dungeon. I can't remember if there's anything like that later. I don't think there are. There might be. Yeah, I don't remember. I like this uh, <laughs> the swordfish flying in the air <laughs> and stabs you. <laughs> it's kind of. Um... 
similar to the jellyfish, like a subversion of, of their ability. Um, so now this swordfish is uh, is kind of like a dart flying through the air, and the jellyfish were kind of tentacles going across yeah. you. I remember adding adding dramatic explosions for the bosses was was one of the last things I added in the last uh, several months of, of development. So I thought uh, it, it, they they originally just exploded very quickly, like any enemy. But I, I thought, well, this is, this is a boss battle. It should be much more dramatic when you die. So put extra now, effort on that. Now that you pointed out that the sound is um, very similar to the trophy one, except the trophy one just a lot more of it. So now we have um, the carry lantern ability. Yeah, this was this was kind of a fun. Like of all the overworlds, um, I think this one's the best because it's got these little mazes that you have to navigate with the lantern. So I think that makes this overworld a little bit more interesting than some of the others. It's still a fetch quest for gold, but it's got these dark mazes mm -hmm. thrown in. So, and then this guy gives you this hint right here, which is very important for the next dungeon. You had a similar uh, hint in the beginning. In the beginning of the game, in the library, you check the stacks, and it gives you um, another hint for you to yeah. remember later. And that's for like the very, very last dungeon. <laughs> Are you are you putting audio of the game in post? Yes. Oh, you can't hear it. <laughs> I can't hear it now. Oh. <laughs> Is that better? I can just barely make it out, but um, make it if you're if you guess if you're adding it in post, I don't have to hear it. <laughs> I know it sounds like. <laughs> I was very happy with the um, the theme song for this overworld. It's, it has a very uh, adventure feel, like um, they're on, yeah. you Speaking of sound, you uh, released your your sound engine kind of for the public um, GG sound. Uh, I don't yeah. know if you released it after this project, during it, or before. Um, I think I released it during during Elliot. Yeah. Actually, no. I might have released it even back in the Anomalous days. It wasn't always called GG sound. The first iteration of it was just called Sound Engine, and it was included with a a plugin system for Famitracker that I actually added to Famitracker uh, with permission of the of, of the guy that maintains it, JSR, I think is his name. And the plugin system was kind of cumbersome and hard to use. Um, it was written in, in C++, but it generated it generated um, output directly for 
sound engine slash DG sound from Family Tracker, and um, I remember early on Chiru, who made Famitone, sort of a competing solution, really heavily criticized that solution for being so cumbersome. He wasn't wrong, <laughs> and he released Famitone uh, at the time. It became much more widely adopted, probably because of the fun name and because he used. Uh, uh, I think he just used like Family Tracker has like the ability to export text. And it was just it made a lot more sense to write a simple script to translate the text output rather than having this big cumbersome uh, plugin system. But in any event, uh, I stuck with it and uh, made it easier to use over time and eventually changed it so that it wasn't the cumbersome system, but instead used the text output and, and a script. Um, and I just kept adding to it and changing it over. And it's not the most powerful sound engine, but I, a lot of people tell me it's the easiest to get up and running for a game. So I guess that's the plus of, of using GG Sound. You want to you want to easily put music in your game and not have too much headache technically. Um, it might be the best one. Um, and I, I remember uh, before it became called GG Sound, the first instance I remember of somebody using it was a, a, a perhaps lesser well lesser known NES homebrew called Starkeeper. Um, by a guy in, in China, um, and he he actually put Sound Engine in the credits. So I was quite happy to see that it was in use. And I think that's that that event is what inspired me to give it a better name and to make it even better. Because I thought, oh, well, it's already useful to somebody. Maybe it'll be useful to somebody else. I have seen several people um, speak about GT Sound and recommend it. So it is. It is being used uh, today for projects. Nice. Well, that makes me happy. <laughs> Releasing the, those type of uh, projects for the community, is that something that's important to you? Well, I, I think that I'd always admired... There, there's there's always been people around, and in every programming community I've occupied, even as far back as being a teenager in the QBasic world, it seemed like there were always some programmers around who were just these sort of unstoppable heroes of the community that just sort of supported and, 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 and knew everything. And I guess I was always inspired by those people. I was like, I want to do something like that. I want to be one of the people that... Uh, that people really, you know, look to for help and, and provide something that helps people. And I don't think that I quite became one of those in this community. Like, I'm certainly no temples or memblers of these, these guys that seem to know everything there is to know technically about the system. But um, I, I am happy that I, I managed to create one thing that uh, that other people use. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think DD Sound is, is all that technically impressive. It's not necessarily all that fast. And the data it generates is not all that small, but it's I put a lot of effort into the, into the documentation and ease of use, and people seem to appreciate that. So I'm happy that it's found its niche. I do I do admire that because you could have people can just sit on their own tools and just not release them or not make them available. Um, releasing them and providing documentation is yeah, something that can be applauded. Yeah, and it's it's hard too, because like I want I wanted to release my other tools. Like I made a bunch I made a map editor, I made a graphics editor, kind of similar to any a screen tool like Shiro made. And and all of these things had some pretty nice features in them, but 
I was really hesitant to release more of my stuff because anytime you release something publicly for people to use, you open yourself up to complaints or bug reports or feature requests. And once you do that, you, you always feel like, well, I want to, I want to, you know, support these people because I put this out there, and the reason I put it out there was to help people. And so, if it's not serving its purpose, I need to make these changes. And so, once you do that, you sort of open yourself up to a whole lot of extra effort yeah. on the side that has nothing to do with your current game project. That did happen with GG Sound a number of times. There would be sort of a flurry of requests on NES Dev. Um, for a feature request and bug fixes, and I would put an enormous amount of effort into it. It's like, um, you know, when, when you put a piece of software out there to make it robust enough for people to just jump in and use, it becomes a whole different beast from a personal tool. So, yeah, like any anytime one, and I don't think I even really knew that when I was going into it. I just knew I wanted to put something out there, but I didn't, um, you know, just like not knowing the scope of a game project ahead of time, you sort of underestimate the, the amount of effort that might be required to, to support a community of people. Yeah. So, I'm happy I did it, though. I mean, it's it's nice to have have produced something. I think that's why um, some developers, maybe on the onset, didn't um, think they were going to release your tools uh, open source, I think. At some point, some ultimately do release some open source. The point that's saying, like, uh, open source, change it as you wish. <laughs> you know, I'm not making more changes. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm at this point. I cert I'm certainly there with GG Sound, and I think I think uh, and and people have written to me sometimes asking for things, and I've said that I'm not just uh, at this particular stage in my life. I'm not maintaining it anymore. It's not really active. Um, but I think I've seen some people have forked it, made their own changes to it, so it's kind of out there, um, evolving on its own. <laughs> the earlier screen, um, that, the solution where you were in um, one of the dark caverns and uh, the NPC kind of said, you know, uh, one, four, two, three. Yep. You know, that, the solution, we got the key and we're, we're on our way. palette changes from dungeon to dungeon kind of really help because more or less um, there are differences in the rooms but that palette change kind of keeps it a refresher like it's not you're not repeating the same thing when you go from um, the yeah and I think the, I think the textures are are subtly different like they're pretty mm -hmm. similar but I, I think that I think they were changed somewhat It was amazing at how how much, like e even with even with designing tiles for a dungeon, there were so many things that one doesn't think about initially. Like at one point, I was considering having holes that you could fall into, like in Zelda, and I think I, I cut that because it was a similar problem to solving the problem of of. Um, a tall character walking through a door on the east or the west, it would just look funny having her fall into a pit from certain angles or something. Um, although maybe not. Like you could you could have the you could have her sprites cut off as she falls down, but 
I think I just decided it would be too annoying to program, and furthermore, sometimes, like, even though Zelda, Zelda's a great game, but, you know, there, there are times when you fall off of things so easily that it gets kind of frustrating, so maybe I just thought it'd be better not to have the player worry about that, but, I don't know, could have gone either way. Elenial's um, sprite, very large. What what drove you to uh, make the playable character this scale? My my artist insisted on it. Um, I think that I initially wanted the chibi character mm -hmm. because I wanted to keep things constrained. Like anytime you have an opportunity to make any sprite smaller, take it <laughs> on the NES because. Because the, you, you can only have 64 on the screen at any given time, and you can only have eight across um, on any given scan line. So, any if you don't need to make something big, don't. <laughs> so I wanted I wanted to have a chibi Atlantial, um and have Taito basically the same size as her. Um, but I think the artist just really wanted something that looked more like, you know, closer to being a full size anime character. Yeah. Um, so, so we went with that. I kind of got lost in here at this moment, <laughs> backtracking yeah. a bit. One thing that, that I thought was cool in retrospect, each dungeon is only four rooms wide by four rooms tall for a total of 16 rooms, but it's, it's interesting how even such a small size can still be a kind of a maze that you can get yeah. lost in. Um, and I was happy to see how many different configurations and, and puzzles um, could fit in such a size. Programming the uh, oh this boss, this is this was my favorite boss in the whole game. It's a really cool uh, mechanic that you have to use the the fetch to grab the yeah. eyes. Yeah, and the the technique I was describing earlier for having something follow something else um, was used for the eyeballs on the ends of the crab's eye stalks to stay attached to the eye stalks. So as the crab moves back and forth, the eyes sort of, sort of sway on the end of the stock <laughs> as a result of that technique, and so it makes it look very comical. Um, and, uh, and 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 just the, the the act of fetching it was really fun. So uh, it, it's definitely my probably my favorite thing in the game, <laughs> actually. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very creative one. Um trying to think if any other of the bosses have some thing that um, Taito has to interact with in, in that way. I, I think this is um, the most obvious one that it, it does. Yeah, there's uh, 
he's very he's very useful. He has the the, the homing technique is very mm -hmm. useful. For the final boss due to how aggressive yeah. the final boss is. And I remember programming, get, or getting the animation for the crab legs here to look right was really a big challenge. And I think and it, because because the the artist was not very. I mean, she'd never made any video games before, and I hadn't either. And so, but she 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 hadn't done any animation before, so we kind of had to both figure out how to do it. And I think that I eventually settled on okay, just draw one crab leg, and in several different positions. And then she gave me the the one leg and the body, and then I went in and put and superimposed the leg in different positions so I could get all the different animation frames for the boss. So it was sort of a collaborative effort to get the uh, get the animation going. Fun story about the owl song that plays is I think it was vaguely inspired by at, at the there's a song in Chrono Trigger called At the Bottom of Night and I think that the way the melodies move in that song vaguely inspired the owl song. <laughs> oh, we didn't talk about it, but for um, you did the music. Um, I'm assuming the sound effects too. Yep. No, that's definitely one, that's definitely one of my favorite aspects of, of making any game. <laughs> Although I'm starting to learn a little pixel art now. You know, all these small Pico 8 projects I'm doing now, I'm starting to do all the things. <laughs> Including pixel art. Trying trying to learn pixel art. And you're, you're doing a, a lot of Pico 8 now, and we could talk about that um, in the closing, about all your other projects, but um, you've, you've been putting a lot of your efforts into those. Yep. And a, a little tip for other people who uh, will play Alia, if uh, you let Taito um, fetch the, the gold that's in the clams, you get a lot of gold. <laughs> I recall there being a fun trick for for these clams, and I'm trying to remember what it was. I think it's because if you just go yet. if you just go up and just attack the clam and, and kill the clam, you get no gold, sometimes gold. But if you fetch the gold out of it, um, then you get a, a thousand gold. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, most of the overworlds have some kind of little twist to them. So in the last one, there were the dark dungeons and you'd lantern for it. And this mm -hmm. one, you've got instead of treasure chests, you have these clams that fly after you. 
Um, so I guess they managed to make the overworlds, even though they were they were straightforward fetch quests, they each have something unique to them. <laughs> That's surprising relative to the last one. Designing the, uh, the 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 foliage in this game was quite time-consuming. I, I I didn't bother to add any auto tiling to my map editor, mm -hmm. so I just had to eyeball how patterns would look and just painstakingly assemble them um, using a sort of copy-paste technique. <laughs> If I ever make another game with this type of pattern in it, I will for sure be using auto tiling. <laughs> and now we have um, the carry lineal ability, which um, mm -hmm. we'll use right before the dungeon. Yeah, the carry ability was this time. I think uh, reading through your development notes, um, point you were considering having a a boss um, where you kind of jump onto stones. Um, I think ultimately didn't happen. I'm thinking that you would use the carry Alaniel to kind of step on like a kind of like something like you did with the switches that are later uh, in this dungeon. I think you were going to do a boss where you kind of had to step away on these blocks to kind of get closer to the boss. Hmm. I actually don't remember that. That's fun. You found that in my devlog? <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. I don't, I don't, like, if I was in your position, I don't know if I'd remember either, you know, going back so many years. <laughs> Sounds like a cool idea, though. Maybe for all you do. It's something, um,. Um, Star Tropics One, I think, did it um, when you're fighting one of uh, uh, one of them. Oh, that's another thing. This game kind of borrowed from Star Tropics was the was was the, the, the moments, especially this dungeon, where you're hopping around on blocks that have switches on them. Mm -hmm. Very similar. It's almost C and D similar. <laughs> <laughs> um. And l looking at the overworld just prior to having entered the dungeon, it looks like some of those some of those uh, areas on the temple outside could have used some shadows <laughs> to to evoke that you were on a higher mm. plateau. dungeon gets a little bit more complex now that you have that carry ability which is pretty cool because now yeah. you have the switches and you have um, segmented rooms like this yeah this might be one of the more interesting dungeons in the game um, especially once you get to the switch puzzles Yeah, right now I'm, I thought maybe this would give you a key based on you killing all of the enemies in the room, but 
not this one. Yeah, that's certainly logical to think that, given that there was a very similar mm -hmm. configuration of the earlier dungeons. Yeah. Yep. So, a little little black-hearted programmer deception on my part. <laughs> I remember being inspired to use Screen Shake by um, by Julius of Morph Cat Games uh, mm -hmm. because of uh, uh, Super Bat Puncher. Super Bat Puncher, yeah. It was the that was the first time I'd ever really noticed Screen Shake, <laughs> and I thought, well, that's pretty neat. Maybe I should do that too. <laughs> it gives a um, a really good feeling to the player, like. You know, when the screen shakes from the pillars coming down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> gives, you, gives you that sort of like Indiana Jones, uh, like, Ugh! kind of feeling. <laughs> Went into a room with traps in it. Yikes. But, so these switch puzzles were really, really uh, a can of worms to program for a number of reasons. Um, one was. The way the puzzles were designed was also kind of quasi-random because each each button was assigned a, 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 a bit mask, I believe, and so each time you hit one of these buttons, it would it would um, pop up any uh, certain other buttons that hadn't already been depressed, and. I just kind of experimented with these bit masks on the buttons until it felt like an interesting puzzle. I didn't really have an idea exactly how it would be executed. I just kind of played around with those elements until it felt like a puzzle. And then on top of that, on, on, you, on the top of the screen at any given time in Alia is a, is, a, is a 16 pixel wide black bar of pixels that hides scrolling updates. And mm. I did not use a scanline counter um, mapper for this game. I used Unrob. So to accomplish that, I had to make my um, vertical blanking routine, which happens 60 times a second, I had to make it run at the exact same amount of CPU cycles every frame and have it and then and then actually continue with an empty loop into the next frame with graphics turned off to, to create that bar of 16 pixel wide um, scroll update hiding. Um, and the scroll update hiding is only necessary because on the normal mappers you only have two name tables um, which enables you to, to completely hide scrolling artifacts in one direction. But if you want to do it both directions you are forced to show some tiles being updated. So I had to I, mean, I didn't have to hide them. One, some people like to straddle the updates between an eight pixel wide bar on the top and an eight pixel wide uh, bar on the bottom. And so on old TVs, because of the NTSC's uh, yeah. limitations, you don't see those updates very well. So sometimes people just leave it at that. But I decided not to um, because you know a lot of people will be playing on emulators or be playing with the AVS. And because of just sort of being in the NES dev world, there was a bit of that sort of competitive desire to have a technical achievement like that, I guess. And so I made the regrettable decision of creating a scrolling engine that 
could perfectly hide the updates. And as a result, I spent so much time, I, I, in order to have my vertical blanking routine take the same amount of CPU time every frame, I had to have empty loops running that were governed in how long they ran based on the parameters to the, the vertical blanking routine. And so for the, for the, for the uh, switch puzzles in this dungeon, um, depending on on how many switches popped up at a given time would affect how big that bar was because of how many name table tiles were being written. And so I had to have these extremely complicated tables of values for how many times to run the empty loop to keep that bar at the top stable. And in retrospect, the amount of time and headaches I, I went through making that look right was just mind-blowingly insane. <laughs> like, in retrospect, I could have designed the dungeon not to scroll between between rooms. I could have just had it fade out, fade in. And I could have made the whole game like that. And in retrospect, I wish I had, because the, the technical challenge of making all the scrolling work, both in the overworld and between rooms in the dungeon, was so massive that, like, imagine if, if I'd used all those headaches and time for additional puzzles and gameplay, I think the game would have been better. But instead, my pride directed me towards a, a technical achievement alongside the game, and I'm not so sure I'm happy with that decision. Because <laughs> I, I, I think some of my favorite games uh, don't have scrolling, they're just still screen-by-screen -screen games, and all of the focus is on story, gameplay, and enemies. And um, I think given my constrained resources and, and scope, um, that might have been a better decision. Yeah, that's something. And any anyone that does like any kind of project, like those things they call lessons learned, you know, it's just you don't know it until till you encounter something like that, and then you're in retrospect, you go on to the next project, and you're like, if you start going down that route, you're like, oh, recall that, and let me try <laughs> something different. That's just something that happens. <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely don't 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 really. Re I mean, I don't really regret it because it became a unique thing that it is. So yeah. Um, like one of the craziest things in Elia technically was you you can you can fire Kaido with fetch at an item in one dungeon room and then start walking towards another dungeon room, scroll to the next room, and Kaido will show up with the item he picked up in the previous <laughs> room and bring it to you. And and so there's that, and then and and the enemies in in the room you're scrolling away from will stay on screen as they scroll off, and the new ones will scroll onto the screen without fail. And like I could have taken any number of shortcuts there, like make any, all enemies disappear and make enemies appear when you get to the new room. It would have been so much easier technically, but instead I decided to keep them all on screen at once and allow Taito to, to pass between the rooms. Like and, 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 and those those two things as well were. This enormous headaches to get right, and the, 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 as I said, the end result is is very impressive. But <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny because I, I I remembered the horrors of getting that working when I did trophy, and so whenever there's a screen transition in trophy, enemies disappear and then they come back. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to go through that again. And most games that I, I think uh, Mega Man games they just do that. Everything just sort of vanishes. You, you yeah. scroll in the room and then they pop on the on view. It's just technically so much easier to do that on a system that is so uh, constrained. 
that bank of health is uh, very useful in the game at bosses. Is that something yeah. you, you always? Is that something? How did that make its way into the game? Was it always there, or like that, stored that your, health? Yeah, it's stored health, kind of like potions. It's in your inventory. You kind of have a bank of it. You pull it up. Yeah, I don't know what led me to that. I think, like in Zelda, you have things like you ha you can get bottles and you can fill them with health potions. Yeah. I think I wanted to have a mechanic like that, and I think at one point I may have even had potions that you could buy. Um, but I think that I wanted to be more minimalistic and just allowed hearts to accumulate past your health meter yeah. and on your inventory screen. It's interesting because that could be used as kind of um, a self-imposed difficulty or hard mode. You just don't use those and the, became, the, the <laughs> game becomes harder. Um, yeah. I think I'm, I'm missing a key, so I'm looking for this key. I have one more key to get. Yeah, it might be. It might be that there's one switch room I don't think you visited yet. Yeah. I think you're almost there, actually. Here it is. I do really like um, when you switch from doors to nah, to the end result. These the pillars that are the the gates. Yeah. I remember just just programming the animation of the pillars was quite quite an ordeal in and of itself. It's like almost anything that you do in an NES game project is, is a like a multi-day project. <laughs> I did find that fascinating reading um, when you set up kind of goals of the day or a task list and kind of cross them off the list and then you revisit it because one one reason or another um, very interesting yeah, it, was, it was just helpful it was very helpful to do that on a daily basis because the it, creating something like this is such a daunting task you kind of have to break it down and when you write it down it takes some, some mental load off because then you're only focusing on some tiny thing yeah the time <laughs> so like when creating a scrolling engine um it might just be drawing a horizontal row of tiles, and that's it. And that's all you're doing today. We're just going to write one row of tiles. <laughs> it is very helpful in any kind of, besides games, any complex thing you're doing to break it down into smaller tasks and something that's achievable, and you cross it off, and, and you kind of keep going. Yeah. Because like you're saying, things could be just so daunting. Just, if your list just said scrolling engine, you're like <laughs> three months of work. It's amazing how the difficulty of scrolling increases exponentially with complexity on the NES. So, like the simplest, like a single screen game, pretty straightforward. You just load a single name table, mm -hmm. but then you do like one way scrolling, and 
that's not so bad. But then you add two-way scrolling, and then all of a sudden you have to be a little bit more careful with how you handle attributes, but even that's not so bad. But then you could go to eight-way scrolling, and you wind up with a massive nightmare on your hands because now you have the problem of you only have two name tables, so you can only cleanly scroll in one direction. So you have to solve the problem of how do you show the remaining name table updates. And then you also have the problem of um, uh, like when you're diagonally scrolling, you you have to have one of either the horizontal row that's being updated or the vertical row being up updated off screen. Get the corner. <laughs> you have to get that corner tile. And you have to update not just the aim table, but the attribute table as well. And um, and then you have to span name tables. So, so like if you're if you're between two of them, you have to draw a chunk of tiles on one aim table and a chunk of tiles on the other. And it just becomes very, very tricky. There's a lot of mental arithmetic and mental gymnastics you have to go through to, to figure out how all of those things how to parameterize all of those PPU data uploads. It's very tricky to work through them all. <laughs> would you um, would you do it again? Would you do another eight-way scrolling game? I actually would not want to write another one again. Um, Trophy, I did kind of write a new scrolling engine for it, and it's halfway between the two-way scrolling and an eight-way scrolling engine, because it can either scroll horizontally or vertically, mm -hmm. but not both. So it wasn't quite as complicated as the Paulia one, but um, more complicated than the Nautilus one. But uh, I, I, after having made three games with three scrolling engines, I, I would I actually wouldn't want to do it again. I'd probably reuse one of the ones I've already done. If I could even figure out how to use it again. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I, I, Julius, again, was useful uh, to talk to when I was making Owlia because he had either a blog or talked to me personally about how he did his scrolling engine for Super Bat Hunter, and he mentioned for like for the attribute tables, um, which is the coloring of the different sections of the screen, he mentioned having mirror images of the attribute tables in RAM. So two 64-byte tables representing the name, t the attribute table for one name table and the attribute table for another, so that when you're updating the scrolling, you, you just do a whole bunch of bit masking and fiddling on that mirror, and then in your V-blank routine, you're just blasting one straightforward column or row of attribute bytes. Um, and so you don't have to worry so much about the crazy bitwise nonsense during the blank. So thanks to Julius for suggesting that idea. <laughs> we kind yeah. of brought that up in the um, warm-up. But anyway, that the NES homebrew scene um, has a lot of support. Um, communities where developers can just shoot out questions for help or help me with this one line and that's kind of great that that's available yeah yeah but my first memory of receiving help from nes homebrew um was i was on nes dev back in like november of 2008 I think, and i was looking for a tutorial about how to get started like just how do i write any code to do anything on the system 
and uh, Rob Bryant of Slydog Studios suggested the NES 101 tutorial and sent me the zip file for it. And it just so happened to be just about the perfect level of, of detail for me because I, I had some experience with assembly language, so it wasn't completely foreign to me. Um, it, but the tutorial wasn't completely wasn't completely hand-holding, but it was just enough that I was able to figure out how to get a picture onto the screen. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that, that's kind of a fun anecdote. The, the first person to reach out and helped me and yes, Deb was was Rob Bryant. Now he's probably one of one of my best friends. <laughs> Our this is... pirates. <laughs> this is uh, really like the second town of the game, and this yep. one's a little bit more. Even though it's, uh, I don't know if it's geographically smaller, but it's more robust and has these mini games for you to uh, get the. The last bit of money you need. Yeah, the mini games. These were these were fun to program <laughs> and have have Taito take an active role in playing the games. So this one's uh, like a shooting gallery, um, yeah. per se, where the the faster objects uh, give it, more points. It was really fun programming the little things sliding across. So that they made <laughs> it sort of looked like an old tiny shooting gallery from like an old. Uh, you know, country fair where things are sliding across, and they're kind of moving and not—they're not moving at a perfectly uh, perfect rate. They're they're sort of jitter. You know, they look like there's some old mechanism back there making sort of jitter yeah. along. And I just tried to simulate that feel and, 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 and added like random bits to the velocity of the thing so it looked like an old tiny um, shooting gallery. <laughs> It was fun. It was fun. Uh, these games are sort of have a sort of gambling or risk reward kind of feel to them. Yeah. So that if you, if you lose, you're losing quite a bit of money. But if you win, yeah. you gain back quite a bit. <laughs> I think and it's uh, if you lose, ten. If you lose everything. The, one of the rooms, you can get a thousand gold and keep coming back in and, and replenish yeah. enough to pay for the games again. So you you can't you 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 can't completely get stuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this one's um. 10,000, and if uh, you win, it doubles. <laughs> you see me fail at this so bad. <laughs> I enjoyed writing the pirate dialogue for this so that the way words were spelled <laughs> evokes a pirate accent. <laughs> so I feel like I it's kind of... Oh, go ahead. I also enjoyed writing the pirate shanty for this area. <laughs> Yeah.
You're in plenty points. Congratulations. Here's 20,000 gold pieces. Welcome to me, humble player target game. It'll cost you 10,000 gold pieces to play. Faster targets earn more points. See the number at the top of the board. Will you pay? It's funny he's facing away from Atlanta. Well, he should be facing towards her. <laughs> Unless you talk to her on the other, talk to him on the other side. Could have been. Because I think that all the NPCs are programmed to face who they're talking to. That that was a whole other can of worms. Was was the NPC talking to NPCs and the and the dialogue box that came up? That was that was a huge amount of time spent making that stuff work. Like in the uh, there he's facing her. So in the uh, in the original first town, there there are situations where you can talk to an NPC and. The, the text box is partially occluding um, Atlaniel or or the person you're talking to or Taito and I had to figure out well how do I make how do I make the text box hide this part part of the sprites <laughs> because on the NES you can't just draw an arbitrary rectangle of pixels you have to draw yeah. eight by eight little chunks at a time and so what I ended up doing was, Whenever you talk to anybody, the camera zooms in on the 8x8 grid. Like it, it aligns itself with the 8x8 grid so that the text box is guaranteed to be all in the same location on the screen. And then I made all of the sprites find what, what's the shortest distance they'd have to be nudged to align with the text box. And the, and the maximum distance would be about 4 pixels vertically or, or down. So you might notice when you start a conversation or something, the person you're talking to or Laniel will pop slightly with just a few pixels mm. so that they can be cleanly cut off on the 8x8 grid by the text box. <laughs> so some games, I think Crystalis, you, you can see artifacts um, from not doing things like that. But I, I was like adamant that I had it oh, really clean. This game was really fun to program. This one I could not do. Like I get I think all of them but one bottle and I couldn't do it. Yeah, and I think this one is basically a game of luck. Like you just walk where Titus gonna fly towards you so he will intersect the bottle, but whether or not he drops it on the bottle, mm -hmm. I think was driven entirely by a random number generator. So it's really a game of luck. Like if you're not aligned at all with the bottle and its flight path doesn't intersect the bottle, then you don't yeah. get the bottle. But if you line it up, then it's still it's still random, so you might still lose the game, even if you're playing it perfectly. More similar to an actual carnival game, then. <laughs> it's yeah, rigged against you. <laughs> yeah, it definitely rigged against you. But it, it was fun to program, and the animations were really fun, like dropping the ring on the bottles and stuff. Yeah, at first I was like, maybe you have to make it so Taito changes direction. That's how it gets on the bottle, so I've kept like moving across the room. <laughs> yeah, one can easily imagine the scope of this game so much bigger. You can imagine the sound be really, being really big yeah. and you have to go explore other buildings and go talk to some like creepy person in a, in a back store somewhere that has strange items for sale, etc. 
I mean, you know, I, if I had if I had gone for the open world scope I was originally envisioning, I'll bet you I would still be working on it today. And that would be bad because the original artist would be gone. That would be really a hell of luck. <laughs> Unless that's what was keeping her around. <laughs> <laughs> Because, like, you gotta, like, if you aim to that scope of basically an NES era um, action adventure game that had multiple people on it full time, you know, for six months, a year, and it's it's different when it's you doing it in your spare time, you know, then, then you're there for years. Yeah. And that kind of still happens with a lot of homebrew projects. They'll be in development for years. Yeah, like uh, like say Full Quiet, for instance. That's mm -hmm. been in development since what 2014 now, something yeah. like. That. It's been around for a long time, and I, I'm I'm sincerely hoping they will finish that because I uh, that's a really neat project, and I, I've played some of the demo. It's very very impressive. There's been a lot of they keep updating it and they keep updating the scope, so I'm hopeful it'll it'll, it'll still come out. Yeah, me too. And also Justice Beaver for the SNES. That's another one that's been around for years that hasn't been finished yet. But uh, yeah, the SNES is a whole other beast. I'm I'm scared of that system. Like I think with 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 these with these old eight bit computers, there's something about them that makes it inherently appealing and fun to keep working on things because the the amount of things you can do with the hardware is small enough you can comprehend it all at once. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in terms of the basics, I mean, obviously there's a huge amount of details with respect to very very you know nuanced behaviors that only the most technical minded people can grasp. But in terms of just using it and understanding how to put sprites on the screen, how to make sounds, how to take input, how to draw a scrolling map. There's only a handful, and they're pretty easy to to, um, to know what you're supposed to do. Um, I, I hesitate to say easy because <laughs> when you think about things like name, like doing scrolling the meme table and attribute table, you get into a whole mess. But what I mean to say, what I really mean to say is there are there are not that many features, and yeah. each feature in and of itself is not that hard to to comprehend and understand. Whereas something like the like a like the SNES has a lot more options in the hardware, and, you, and I don't think probably anyone can memorize all of them once and so it's less it's less friendly because it's just it's just such a sprawl yeah much more as possible graphically and, and and with the audio and everything else the scope can can get just as out of hand as any modern pc game so there's something about the old 8-bit machines which is inherently appealing for it just it sort of gives you a feeling like there are fewer paths forward, so it's easier to decide which path to take.
This was a fun part to program. I, I regret that it, it, the, there aren't as many details as I would like to evoke that you are in fact on a submarine, except for the portholes. Yeah. It would have been nice to have added other graphics that should look like an engine or the nose of the submarine or something of that nature. But uh, it ended up working out, yes. For some reason, this octopus is only able to bend its arm at orthogonal angles. <laughs> I guess this, uh, this octopus has arthritis. This is this is a fun boss too. I like this one. Yeah, I think it's the only part in the game where I was I used. Um, there's a there's a there's a bit on each sprite for saying whether it should be drawn behind the background, and I believe that was used for the eyeball mm -hmm. to hide it behind the portholes. But there was an additional challenge there because I had to use two different blacks so that the eyeball was only visible in the porthole window and not in the black outlines between mm. the wood slat. That's something I find interesting about the colors available on the NES. There's multiple blacks. Yep, and there's one black which you shouldn't use, as I recall. <laughs> I remember working on it on Anomalous, and I was working with Bunny Boy of RetroUSD at the time. And I was using, I think it was dollar sign zero D or something. Mm -hmm. um, I think that was the color. And he said, don't don't use that because it produces such a weak signal on CRTs it can actually mess with the with the um, with the signal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I stopped using that. And I think I even baked in in my graphics editor if I ever detect the usage of dollar sign zero D to replace it with dollar sign zero E. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny I'm remembering all these technical details that I'm talking about. It's been quite a little while now. Flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> this this part's pretty interesting. It's supposed to be the back of a giant tortoise fortress that Hermon mm. pilots. And so these are supposed to look like the segments of a tortoise's back, a really huge tortoise. Um, it's alluded to in a conversation with an NPC in the first village. Um, and I think at one point I was envisioning having cutscenes that would show the, this fortress from a distance. Kind of like how at, when you beat all the Me Robot Masters in Mega Man, you see mm -hmm. Delta Riley's fortress before you enter it. I was mm -hmm. thinking of like that. Um, so I don't know how many people actually realize that's what you want. <laughs> it's a big tortoise. It makes sense now that you're telling me. At first I thought it was more of a um, sci-fi alternate zone, like you've got to. <laughs> yeah. That's like a psychedelic kind of feel. Because you're so zoomed in on the on the tortoise shell. Yeah, there's actually a, a soft lock in the game on the tortoise area. Mm. If you use the carry lanial technique, at just the right moment, you can get you can get the camera stuck away from her. I think I think it's possible to. You no, know, I, th I think I think there's an actual soft block there. Well, like where it did break, and you can't cover it. So, but thankfully, it's somewhat hard to make happen. <laughs> That's um. Oh, since you're speaking about that, how did the um the testing and um 
bug fixing go for the project? Um, I think it went pretty decently. Um, maybe not as robust as I did for Nomalous. Because mm-hmm. um, with Nomalous, I had a lot of help from uh, a good friend of mine that's been my friend since like third grade. And uh, I think for whatever reason, due to challenging things going on personally for, for him, we were able to connect um, on this game as much for testing. But I, I sourced a lot of people in the NES homebrew scene, um, like Justin Ferenich, for example, uh, who mm-hmm. likes to test homebrews. Um, so he had a lot of valuable input and quite a few other people as well, including including Bo. Uh, he he, uh, he did a lot of testing of this game as well. And uh, quite a few other people. I like the music for this dungeon too. It gives that, um, you know, um, danger, eerie feel that you know it's the the final dungeon. <laughs> yeah. In retrospect, I wish I had written more dungeon songs and also one more overworld song. Like, look, there's the adventurous overworld song that plays <laughs> in the mountain area, and then when you go to the beach area, it's the same song. In, in retrospect, I wish I had written an additional song for the beach and maybe a unique dungeon song for every dungeon. And I'm not so sure I, I, I like the default dungeon music. Mm-hmm. It's not bad, but it's kind of atonal and not very tuneful. And for so many years, I have deeply admired the dungeon music from The Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. Both the, both the Light World and Dark World dungeon songs are just always loved <laughs> those songs. <laughs> I wanted to write something, I think at one point I wanted to write something like that, but um, probably would have had to spend more time. And this shield ability comes in real handy in these, um, this last Tido, dungeon. Taito is one hell of a robust owl. <laughs> It's like he's made out of titanium or something. <laughs> a robotic owl. The sword becomes kind of like your last ditch. Like, when title's away, then you use the sword. Yeah. How did you go about the the level or the dungeon design? Is that um, something you kind of graphed out on paper, or, or how did you how did you how did you tackle that? It was pretty tricky. Um, I had my my map editor, and I, I would design I would design them um, using the map editor, and it, it was always a very iterative improvisational process because I never really knew. So I'd never built anything like this before, so I didn't really know what would come down the down down the road. Um, and so even things like 
if we position, if we put a like if we, if we want to draw like shadows in the corners, we also want to have rocks in certain parts, but we want to be able to have the rocks in the corner with the shadow or not in the corner with the shadow. We have to draw different compositions of tiles in order to account for that because you don't have multiple layers like on this nest you could have like a brown layer and then you can have an item layer and then you can have a wall layer but on the on the nes you just have the one background layer and maybe a couple of sprites and so for things that would have required more layers we had to make create multiple compositions of of different tiles and so that was quite an iterative process to begin with, and then once we settled on a tile set that would work for those for a variety of those situations, um, then we had then I then I would go about designing the layout, and there were some significant challenges even just even once I solved the problem of what the doors should look like, there were problems with um, scrolling between. Um, dungeon cells, especially going north to south, there were problems with the door. I can't remember what they were right at the moment, but I had to I had to make sure to align things just right so that um, so that the the um, pillar would be um, can't remember now, right? And it's some of this vague memory of running into a, a, a very odd situation where I had to align things perfectly vertically when going between rooms, and it had to do with the pillars. But I, I can't remember the specifics, right? Uh, but then, it, but then, uh, once those problems were solved, just coming up with the layout was just sort of experimentation, like creating passageways between different rooms and. And then playing it and seeing if it felt like it was an interesting maze and, and felt like if I could get a little bit lost in it, which was a bit challenging because as the programmer, eventually you know the layout of things really, really well, so you don't know yeah. how hard it would be for somebody else. Um, but it, it was complex enough, like I was saying earlier with the four, four by four room dungeon. It was complex enough, I, it was hard to remember where everything was, even as the programmer, and I, and I felt, well, I, I could actually get lost in here. And then, and then, and then, um, from there, it was coming up with single room puzzles. And I think at one point, I wanted to create puzzles that were more dungeon wide. Like Zelda has a lot of really brilliant mechanics, such as there are some of those later dungeons where you hit a crystal that's like orange or blue, and it'll make all these yeah. uh, little walls move up and down throughout the dungeon. And there's often a very elaborate way in which you have to navigate to hit the right switch at the right time and you might be either standing on top of those risen walls or not and it becomes very tricky and that you know i was maybe hoping i could come up with something that elaborate at one point but again the, the scope for such a tiny team is so big that i had to constrain to just single room puzzles <laughs> It's like even even with those constraints, the amount of time and effort it took for each individual thing was rather large. <laughs> the dungeon layouts, they're good. Um, I never felt they were repetitive or anything or were um, wasn't having fun doing them. 
So I think all of your your efforts um, were good. And it's uh, final boss time. <laughs> Kaido at work speed. <laughs> like, how, how does he generate that much thrust with his wings so he can fly that fast? That's pretty <laughs> the real hero of, <laughs> of the game, Taito. And this, uh, the, the, the second form of the final boss, it's like, it's like something out of like an 80s horror movie or something. <laughs> or I was thinking, no, I was thinking of that scene from Time Bandits where they're running in a hallway with a huge head chasing them. In a way, uh, Mer Mermon kind of resembles an evil Zora. Mm. down to a nice rhythm <laughs> that took a, a couple plays at the game before I got that down <laughs> There's the key. Now you know it was a, a big turtle. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I think at one point I was hoping to have a cutscene introducing the final level where you'd see something like this so maybe you'd know that's where you were going. Um, but it was, it was fun at least to have this final scene programmed. Darius did a pretty good job of creating these sort of uh, final um, scenes evoking memories of the adventure you were just through, which is kind of <laughs> similar to Star Tropics. Star Tropics had some pretty epic uh, stills at the, in the ending um, the ending screens. I, I think it's, it's really important for, for a game that has a big adventure to have to have a really satisfying ending to have, uh, yeah. have, have good music and, and have it go on long enough and have the music be 
um, triumphant enough that you you know you feel truly rewarded emotionally for having gone through what you've gone through. I, I remember always, I I really love the old games like Doom and Heretic and Duke Nukem and so forth, but I always felt cheated by the endings to those games because it was just like a single screen with like text. Yeah. And, and and it was often something depressing in the in the story. It's like I don't feel anything from that. I want, I want to feel rewarded. <laughs> I want to feel like yeah. you know what I just did meant something. <laughs> so you know, endings of of, of um, uh, especially games, especially since the Super NES era on, were really rewarding. And and some of the NES, some some NES games, the Mega Man games often had a nice lengthy ending that really satisfied. Kirby's Adventure had a gorgeous ending to it. I, I loved the ending of that game. Um, I think the first time I remember experiencing a really satisfying game ending was beating Super Mario Land 2. It was probably the first game I ever beat for myself. And it had the beautiful little song at the end and it showed Wario's castle being transformed back into Mario's castle. And it played some wonderful music and it showed the roll of the credits. And you just felt really good. And here you see all the owls he rescued, all of them, triumphant on their pedestals once again. So that was the game. So um, in retrospect to it, um, as the years have gone on and you've heard the reviews about it or other people's reception about it, how do you feel about the project? I feel good about it. I feel like I feel like a lot of people really liked it and. Um, and, and still like it, like people who get into the scene and find out about it because um, I was lucky enough to sort of get in on the ground floor when the NES homebrew scene was really starting to take off, like right around the time of, when I started the Anomalous Project, that's right around when Battle Kid was getting released. And so it was still very early on. Um, mm -hmm. and, and even when Anomalous was released, it was still fairly early on, like not that many people knew about it. So yeah, between... Um, you know, Anomalous and Alia, they were some of the earliest big projects that made it onto cartridge in the scene. And, you know, I feel I feel kind of lucky and, and blessed that I, that I got in so early because, you know, as the scene's gotten bigger, more and more people have gotten in. It's getting more competitive and more re mm -hmm. really talented people are, are working on things now and, and making bigger and better and more amazing things. And so, you know, I think that if I had, if I had made this game now, um, it probably, I'm sure it would still be received well, but it probably wouldn't get, you know, it, it has a it has a certain place in the community because it came out earlier. Um, and so, you know, I'm grateful that that happened. And uh, yeah, it's it's nice that people like it. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, it being um, one of my first really big game projects is quite a few things that, you know, choices I would have made differently because I misjudged the amount of experience I had versus the resources I had. Um, but e even so, uh, fumbling my way through the project, I ended up with something that was pretty fun and um, enjoyable, and I'm happy with it. So, yeah. That's great to hear, you know, as a, as a fan or a player of the game and other, other projects, you know, I'm, I'm happy that, you can look back at the game and be proud of it and of it. Um, so 
I th you attended a lot of conventions showing off your projects, right? Or, or just mm -hmm. a few? Um, yeah, mainly uh, MAGFest. Uh, and then one time we went to the Long Island Retro Game Expo. But uh, we went to MAGFest in 2011, 2012, and 2013. And then we kind of had a hiatus for a while. Yeah. Is that, is that something you enjoyed? Um, being as a, on the convention floor, showing off your projects or interacting with yeah. uh, the rest of the community. Yeah, it was actually really, really nice. Like it's, you don't really know till you, till you do it, but if you create something and, and you have like a bunch of people come by and really appreciate something you've made, it, it really, it just switches on the serotonin to like level that you, and they probably never experience and, and and it's like it's it's um it's very satisfying to have people appreciate something you've made even if it's you know just it's just a few people um it's very satisfying and uh, i i didn't i didn't get into this in order to get people to say wow i like your stuff uh you mm -hmm. know I, I did it because i enjoy making things and i wanted to make a game i wanted to I wanted because I loved games so much, and because I learned how to program, I wanted to see what it's like to build one and, and experience creating something new based on what I loved as a kid. That would have been enough for me. And when I started, I thought I was just going to have like a ROM that I was going to give out for free. I didn't realize I'd wind up putting things on cartridge and be able to share it with uh, other members of my generation that also fondly remember the NES. But uh, uh, now that that's that's happened, and I've had the experience, and I'm very happy that it happened. It's, it's one of the one of the best experiences of my life, to be quite frank. So, yeah. Um, is is that what kind of led into you eventually releasing your games for free? Um, this game was uh, after the sale. Eventually, you released it as a free download on your on your website. Yeah, yeah. I guess. Um, I guess uh, I guess you know uh, it's it's a very niche market. I mean, I guess it's it's some of, some of the games have actually gone on to have parallel digital releases that have gone on and attained a certain level of success. And I guess I never had the uh, I never had the desire or ambition to push any of my projects to that to that level. Um, I, I'm so fond of the feeling of joy I get just from creating and, and not having a whole ton of responsibility making sure a product succeeds that I just released it for free so that I could sort of not worry about the commercial success of something. And, you know, I'm just, I'm, hap I'm happier that way. Like, it, it, it's, it's fast forwarding to now, even like, um, you know, my, my artist was my wife, and she she left, so we had to split the IP. So I sold um, uh, Progress Productions, and he's uh, um, in conjunction with the 6502 Collective. You know, released my third game, Trophy, and he's. I think they're they're, they're planning, I believe, at re-releasing Novelist and Alia. And um, it's um, it's nice. Uh, I'm happy that it's in their hands because I, especially at this stage, I just don't. I don't want to engage with continuously worrying about the commercial success of something I made before. I just want it to be out there and um, for people to find and enjoy. Like the reason I did it was was not to make money and not to 
impress anyone. I just wanted to make a game and and the number of people who found it and enjoyed it and even enjoyed it on cartridge is far more than I ever experienced ever expected. Um, you know, probably a few hundred dedicated collectors all over the world, maybe if that. Um, but that's more than enough for me. I'm very, you know, satisfied. And so I, I don't need to make more money from it. I'm just happy that I made it. <laughs> um, so you've kind of, you've, um, you kind of moved on to Pico 8 development. Um, and you've released um, several projects on, on that. You want to you talk a little bit about your, your other endeavors? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Pico 8, um, I discovered Pico 8. Uh, I was working at a company called The Nerdery, um, which is based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was working remotely for them. And there was a guy there named uh, Justin who pointed me to Pico 8. And um, I was kind of in intrigued because it was supposed to it, the, the screenshots I saw that looked kind of like a Game Boy Color. Um, I'd never had a Game Boy Color. I had a Game Boy, but it, the square aspect ratio and so on looked a lot like Game Boy, and I thought, this sounds pretty neat. And I remember finding um, uh, Lazy Devs, um, otherwise known as Teamwork Cast, also Christman, who made some introductory videos about Pico 8. He sort of showed how the system worked, and... I really enjoyed his video, and I thought this kind of looks like QBasic because when you use it, it's just this full screen thing with with really big capital letters that you type the code into, and it, it's just this self contained environment. And when it boots up, you get a little prompt like you're in DOS. And so, like I was experiencing like instant nostalgia for when I was a kid using DOS and QBasic, and I was like, this is amazing. So, um, and and so I. Uh, I played some of the games on the on, on, on the website, and there were some really polished, beautiful little games made for it. And so, between Christman's introduction and some of the amazing games people had already made for it, I was just kind of drawn in. And I, I bought it. It's only fifteen dollars, and the API for it is very simple and easy to learn. And actually, a lot of the keywords are are almost the same as Basic. So you've got if then else, which is part of Lua, and you've got uh, CLS and print and uh, circle, line, rectangle, all these commands that were almost the same commands as I used in QBasic. And so all this nostalgia for having learned to make games as a teenager all just came rushing back. And not only that, but the creator of Pico 8 took care to make the API feel like an old computer. So he even has a memory map and you can peek and poke bytes directly to that memory map. And some of them uh, cause you know, different hardware functions to occur. Like you can make the screen change from 128 to 100 by 128 to 64 by 64. There's like split screen modes. There's, um, there's you can turn on mouse support. Um, and so there's just, there's just a lot of things like that that make it feel like you're using an old computer. Um, you can't really code an assembly language for it, but it feels enough like you're using an old computer that it has that uh, that satisfaction to it. Like he even, he even made it um, glitchable. <laughs> so you know, well, if you if you have dirty contacts on an NES cartridge, you get a bunch of crazy tile garbage on the screen. And he made it so that um, if you just write random bytes to the memory map and you're not like 
effing with your actual game logic, you can create glitch effects. And so there's just a lot of things like that make it feel like an old computer. Yeah. So, and it, it has a tracker built into it. This kind of feels like using Famitracker. And it's a four-channel um, uh, sound chip, just like the NES. And so it's like it's like Pico 8 took everything I felt nostalgic about as a kid, NES, QBasic, DOS, and put it all in one package. And I just haven't um, wanted to do anything else since. But it's partly because I don't really have I don't have an artist to work on larger projects with mm-hmm. right now. And Pico 8 is about making really small projects. And so I, I feel, and, and with, with, with such a small screen, um, as, and, and also it only gives you 16 colors, that I've felt emboldened to explore doing a little bit of pixel art. Um, so I, uh, I created several small games for the system. The first game I made was called Dan O'Beekeep. <laughs> which is a play on the name of a NES game called Dino Riki. And it's just a little character moving vertically, attacking enemies that come in waves. It's just a shooter game, but it's a guy walking along the ground. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it, it features my friend Dan throwing um, bug nets at bees. Because <laughs> uh, I have this inside joke with him, because uh, he was introducing Mega Man 9 to me on the Wii some years ago. And he, he showed me Hornet Man. And he's like, Derek, what do you think the weapon is for Hornet Man? I was like, I don't know. And he was like, bees! <laughs> so, so we have this inside joke about him saying bees. And so the game features him catching bees. Um, so I made that game. And then, and then I made a clone of an old Atari 400 game called Adventure Creator that my sister used to play years and years ago. Um, and then I then I made a puzzle game called Hobobot, and a Donkey Kong clone called Dinky King, and then finally, um, just last year, I made a a full port of an NES homebrew called The Mad Wizard to Pico Eight, and it just so happened that that game um, was able to fit perfectly in the constraints of of Pico Eight. I actually took Rob Bryant's map data, the hex data from his NES game, almost completely unmodified. It just stripped out all the dollar signs and commas and dot DB statements mm-hmm. of just the hex digits and literally pasted them into the Pico 8 cartridge and then wrote code for, for peeking those bytes out of the memory map, just like you would do an LVA mm-hmm. with an address on NES and, and wrote the decoder for all the screens in his game. And then uh, built out all of the game behavior on top of that and manually shrunk all of his 16 by 16 characters down to 8 by 8 tiny versions of the characters. And every aspect of the game, so far as I can tell, was reproduced and it fit perfectly in it. So it was a very satisfying uh, project. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a a great fit for you and and your your goals and what you want to do right now. And, um, yeah, yeah. Like I, I, I might want to make some bigger things again in the future, but like, I think, you know, um, you, for, to make a game of, of, of reasonable scope, like a big adventure type of game, you kind of need help. I mean, I, I don't know if there's anybody out there who's done it completely solo, but it seems like most projects like this, that 
wind up getting finished have at least two people. There's always, it seems like there's always the programmer is, does the programming and the art or the programming mm -hmm. and the music, and then they have a, third, a second person helping them with the missing piece, either the music or the, or the art. Um, and uh, I, 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 I made a friend uh, several months ago um, who happens to be a really amazing artist. Um, and probably even better than the artist I worked with with these on these games. I didn't even know she was an artist when I first met her, but she's and she but she's been sitting on all these game ideas. And uh, maybe I'll make a game with her. I don't know if it'll be NES or not because her, the game idea she was coming up with well, it was more of a visual novel. She has a very very detailed story for it. So um, I might be working on something else big at some point, but it's probably going to be uh, something very different from what I've done in the past. But to continue scratching my itch for, for old <laughs> systems, I'm probably going to continue with, with Pico 8 for the time being, just because uh, I can handle all the things. I can do yeah. graphics and, I mean, I can, I can do programming and music already, but I'm learning pixel art. Um, <laughs> and it's not, it's not very daunting in such a constrained scope um, on Pico 8. So, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. NES or larger scale projects are not off the table, but I'm more happy that you're enjoying your your the projects you have been doing in Pico 8. And you've been a very enthusiastic in the community about Pico 8, uh, been a pro proponent, and at least in the circles I'm in with you. So it's, yeah. it's great to see yeah. that. I've probably annoyed some people with how much I talk about <laughs> Pico 8, but, but the funny thing is it's, it really is a. It really meshes perfectly with the retro eight bit computer scene, and and you, you 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 when you when you occupy both discords, you actually meet quite a few people on the Pico eight Discord who have dabbled in Game Boy development or mm -hmm. Commodore sixty four development or NES development, and then you know you you hang around the NES uh, uh, video games age brewery Discord, and you'll meet people, not just me, several people who have. Uh, made full games in Pico 8 um, and who have dabbled in it. And so it's, 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 it's sort of, I sort of see Pico 8 as kind of a gateway drug to, to doing homebrew on, 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 uh, on older computers. Cause I, I think it's attracting mm. some younger yeah. people who maybe didn't grow up with the systems um, to, to this world. Cause it, it's, it's, it's so different. Like so many, I think so many younger people these days who get into game development, the, the thing they, they encounter immediately is something like Unity or um, Godot or, uh, you know, all these modern systems that are these giant, you know, operating system like ecosystems of so this huge, huge tool um, that does nearly everything for you. And, and you have to learn how these things fit together and there's an infinite number of options and there's no constraints. And, and so you just see so just young people can just get overwhelmed by that. But when they find something like Pico 8, um, they might experience what I experienced with like getting into NES. It's like, this, you can only do these things. So if you want to make a game, you have to pick one of these few things in order to, to move forward. And it helps people learn how to scope down their projects and, and finish projects. So I think that, constrained game development sort of hearkening back to the earliest days of game development is probably always going to be around in some form in order to teach people about how games are, are put together. 
and, and it probably will always be around also because I think there's a timeless aspect to them because, um, you know, games don't depend on, on realism. Every so often yeah. you'll hear people talk like, uh, why are people still playing pixelated 2D games? That's old school. It's like, no, there, there's, a, there's a timeless appeal to it. Like, just like, just like with, with art, with something's abstract and suggestive, it can still be really beautiful and, and, and age very well. Like, like, you know, look at the art from like Super Metroid. It's still beautiful today. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't look old or dated. Mm-hmm. It's just beautiful art. <laughs> and yeah. that will always be the case. I, I agree with that. And um, people have said that the earlier games, NES, Super Nintendo, or even before, the foundations there of a game of the game and the mechanics were kind of set and things the only thing that's kind of gone on is people added more complexity or um higher scale graphics but that didn't improve the experience you may not have been even bring anything better to the table and a lot of times it's better to kind of go back and look at these games because they had to put down some great mechanics or a great basis of a game for to be really successful yeah, and I think that there's, that there's certain elements of, of emotion and atmosphere that older style games can create that, that modern AAA fully 3D games can't create. And it's similar to the effect of reading a novel. When you read a novel, there's no graphics, there's no sound. It's all in your head. It's all from suggestion from what you're reading. Mm-hmm. Your brain fills in all of these gaps and it creates these wonderful emotions and atmosphere you can't get any other way. And when you play an old game... Um, you, you, what you're getting is something similar to reading a novel. You see a 2D depiction of, of Samus on the screen and, and some music, and it's not, it's not realistic. It's, it's, it's like a cartoon, but your brain fills in the gaps. You feel like you're actually in it. You feel like you are Samus. And, and it, when, when your brain is forced to fill in the gaps, I think it makes, it, it makes an experience more engaging than when things look 100% realistic. Yeah. Um, anything else before we kind of close it up? I, I guess I can't, I don't have anything on the top of my head. <laughs> well, if people want to, um, follow your updates on your projects or what you're working on, where can people find you? Well, I think the place I'm most active these days is, is Twitter. Uh, sometimes uh, when I'm doing something interesting on my latest uh, Pico 8 experiments, I'll, I'll put out a tweet with a GIF mm-hmm. or something on there. So yeah, gra- at Gradual Games on Twitter is probably the best place these days. Okay. Well, thanks, Derek, for joining me to look at um, The Legend of Alia and to talk about your other works. Um, yeah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You too.